Well, good evening. Uh, we didn't have snow tonight. It's almost sad, isn't it? Uh, rain, though, right? We can't get away from the bed. Anytime we meet, it's just the, the bad weather starts. So, um, I, again, I hope, I hope no one showed up last week. It was our second week. It felt kind of weird to have to cancel uh, two Wednesday nights within three weeks. That was, that was kind of a bummer. So this will be a really short series for us. This was going to be a six-week series, and now it's turned into a, a four-week series. So, um, hey, first thing I would like to do is ask our ushers to come forward, take our uh, weekly tithes and offering. I know a lot of you have come prepared with um, a, a pretty good understanding of stewardship, the idea of Nothing belongs to us, it all belongs to God, and so we hold things with uh, open hands. So thank you for your faithfulness, for your commitment toward stewardship in that really big and significant way. Um, before we start, can I, I want to draw your attention to just a couple, a couple of things here. Um, the first one is, if you turn your, your bulletin over, um, there, there is a, a class that uh, has, is going on just during this month on Sunday mornings that in such a cool way lines up with where we're going in this whole series. You know, we're, we've been looking at this question, what, what is God like? And specifically looking at the various different attributes of God. And uh, Dr. Matt Hickey is uh, starting a Sunday morning class uh, up in one of our classrooms upstairs uh, to, I'm not going to, is it on here? Oh, good, it is, 211. And um, w walking through just in a little bit more depth some of the things that we really won't even have time to cover in here. What, what, is, what is this God in Scripture really like? Looking more at the attributes of God. And uh, the class is called Essential Christian Beliefs. So I encourage you to be there for that. I think it'll just be a, a fabulous time. And many of you know Matt. He's a, he's a fantastic teacher. Um, secondly, I want to uh, ask a friend to come. Um, Wes Tucker is, uh, is a good friend of mine. I'm going to grab this mic over here. Um, Wes is, is a good friend who he's, he's taught some classes for us. He, um, he spent 15 years in, in France uh, ministering to North African Muslims who, who had migrated to that area and um, still lives in this area here now with us. We're fortunate enough to have him, and I consider Wes a good friend. And we, we highlighted a few, boy, a couple months ago now, a missions trip that was going to be taking place. Uh, we had a table kind of out in the mall to, to Dearborn, Michigan. And so I just wanted us to kind of get a, a little recap how it was, share a thought or two on your and the team's time there in Dearborn, Michigan. Thanks a whole lot, Brent. This is such a great opportunity. I've only got a couple of minutes to share with you what happened. Um, some of you might have heard of Dearborn, Michigan. It's where your Ford F-150s come from. The <laughs> Ford, big Ford factory is there, but it's also... Uh, home to the largest concentration of Arab Muslims in the United States. Um, and it's a diverse community made up of Yemenis and Lebanese and Iraqis. And uh, our team, our small team, I don't know if we have that picture tonight or not, but we took up a small team of five uh, to a sister church in Dearborn that had come down all the way down here to solicit our help in that community. Uh, they are planting a church right in the heart of this largest concentration of Arab Muslims in the United States. And they bought an old flower shop that they're converting. And so we went down there to help with some of the refurbishment of that. But I said, there's no way that I'm going to take a team all the way to this special place in the United States only to hammer a nail and drive a screw. We want to meet the community. and We want to really discover what's going on in 
in, in, with Islam in America, what it looks like. Now, you may wonder why I brought my banjo case up here. I thought I'd do a little rendition of Foggy Mountain Breakdown before <laughs> we carried on. Um, the reason I brought it, I've got a sticker on here, which is one of my favorite things. It says, fight terrorism, sponsor a missionary. And I would say fight terrorism, be a missionary right here in our own community. We don't have to cross an ocean. Uh, we've got plenty of Muslims that are living right up close to us here in Fort Collins, about 1,800 in Fort Collins. Some people put the estimate in Colorado between 50 and 60,000 Muslims living along the front range. But one thing that we have learned is that as we get close to the Muslims that live among us, they look very, very different. They don't look as uh, terroristic or as scary as the media often portrays them. And one thing that we discovered, Brent, up in, in, in Dearborn was how splintered and how disunified the Muslim community is. Depending on what country you come from, or whether you're Shiite or Sunni, or whether you're from this town in Iraq or that town in Lebanon, you're not going to go to anybody else's shop. You're not going to go to anybody else's restaurant. You're not going to go to their mosque. And so it's a completely splintered community. And I was, I was really surprised to see that in such a concentrated form. Um, but we had such wonderful um, chances to meet with people in restaurants and uh, in the mosques themselves. We got to visit a few mosques. And um, we found hunger. We, we gave out lots of Bibles while we were there to people that we just met by chance, quote unquote. And we met real openness, real hunger. Uh, people were wanting to discover who Jesus of the Bible is. They know who Jesus of the Quran is, but they haven't really had a chance to look into it. And uh, we're always surprised by the openness that we meet in, in very, very many in the Muslim community. And just one last statistic before I kind of turn it back over to you, Brent. The, there have been more Muslims give their lives to Christ Jesus just in the past 25 years or so than in the whole 1400 and some year history of Islam up to now. And the reason is, the reason is that the church has finally decided to become engaged. The church has finally stood up. They used to be a scary place, it used to be a hard place, but now the church is beginning to go out and we're seeing God is bringing in a harvest. Now, I hope that some of you will join a trip that we want to do in the maybe next year. Go back up to Dearborn, I love it. It's a great, it's a great laboratory for looking at Islam in America. But we're trying to reach out to Muslims right in our own community. And we have a, a group here in the church called the Muslim Friendship Team. And every time I teach a class, I'm teaching, I've got one last class this Sunday, uh, a series that we've been doing for several months now. But you can, you're welcome to come up in room 201 at 10 o'clock. This is our last class, but come on, you can find out some information. But our Muslim Friendship Team is going onto the campus and we're becoming conversation partners for English classes that are happening for the new students. We go over to the potlucks dinners there at the International House and mix with students. And our, the latest thing that's happening is that um, Lutheran Family Services is bringing Iraqi refugee families into northern Colorado. And so many of us are getting involved in partnering with these families, getting them oriented into our community. So all kinds of ways to get involved. And I hope that some of you will say, I'm scared. I don't know what this is going to be like, but I feel the urging of God to maybe uh, go out and give it a try. And the wonderful thing is that we do it together. We learn together. We pray together. And uh, it's not scary. It's really surprisingly beautiful. And the people that we meet, it's just... Uh, very, very refreshing and, and eye-opening. Don't watch the news. Go and, and, and talk to these people. You'll find out what's really happening in the community. So um, 
westtucker at hotmail.com. Plus, I have some little contact cards here if you want to contact me with more info about what's going on. So, but I hope some of you will, in the future, join these Dearborn trips or help us here locally because God is doing some great things in the Muslim world. So, fight terrorism, fight whatever it is, but be that missionary. Go yourself. Come with us, and we can. God's going to do some great things through us, I believe. Thanks, Brent. Thank you so much, Wes. That's wonderful. I appreciate you being up here. And, you know, one of the things that, that I so appreciate about, about Wes is he, he goes out with um, a heart of real humility, which is a Christian virtue that we oftentimes can lose, um, wh especially when it's something that's scary, when it's something that's the, the unknown or, you know, viewing someone else as, are they, you know, it's, an, it's, it's not an us-them mentality, but really reaching out with love. So I'm just so grateful for Wes's leadership in that area. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? We're going to read Exodus chapter 3, uh, the first 12 verses. Exodus chapter 3, the first 12 verses. This is, Moses has grown up in Egypt. He has had to leave due to a, a murder. He runs for um, his life, and he's, he's spent time now, quite a number of years, living out in the desert. He's, he's gotten married. Uh, he has, he's living with his wife's family. And there's this incident that shapes the whole Jewish story from here on out. Exodus chapter 3, we read this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush did not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. He says, verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I, uh, who that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, and here's kind of the key idea, you will worship God on this mountain. This mountain that he's referring to is Sinai. Um, George Steiner was, was a Jewish author, uh, wrote maybe one of the most controversial books of this last century. It's entitled... The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H. Um, it's, a, it's a simple, very simple story. Um, A.H. stands for Adolf Hitler. The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H. 
And the story goes like this. Hitler, the former leader of the Third Reich, did not die in the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin in Germany in May 1945 in this fictitious story, but he escaped, and he went to Latin America, and he had uh, been hiding for decades in the Amazon jungle, and, and Hitler is this elderly 90-year-old man. He's, he's docile, almost, you're coming across senile, uh, helpless almost in many ways. And what, what goes on is this, this search party, after many, many years of hearing rumors, identifies where he is near San Cristobal, but out in the jungle. And so they travel there, and the smaller party leaves San Cristobal to go out in the jungle, and they look for him for months. And after many months, they find Hitler out in a clearing, and then they attempt to, to bring him back to San Cristobal, and from there he will stand um, in front of the world and have to give an account for his crimes against humanity. Well, it's very hard for them to reach San Cristobal. There are thunderstorms. Uh, it, it, it appears it's going to be harder to get him out than it was even for them to get in. They, they lose radio contact as, as they're getting there, but they hear just enough to know that some of their radio... Um, Communications have been intercepted. Other people, other agencies have found out about it. They're worried they're going to take him. They won't be able to try him. They don't know. The helicopters are landing soon. And they know they have a, a decision. Do we try him right here and now in our own little court, or do we wait and see what happens? And they, they decide the former, that, that they're going to try him right there and then. And so this uh, search party, one of them is the judge. They, they assign uh, a defendant to him. They decide... Uh, assign um, a prosecuting attorney, and they, they start this. And uh, Hitler has almost not said a word this whole time. And all of a sudden, all the attention that he has been getting, the focus, it's like it re-energizes who he is. And all of a sudden, it's like he's coming back to the old man that he was. And he starts saying things, and his, his defendants say, well, you know, what he means is, and he pushes the defending attorney aside, and he says these words. He says, gentlemen, I beg your attention. No, I demand it. Was there ever a crueler... Now, what he's going to do here, let me just stop. He's going to give his justification, and he, he lists out four main points on why he was justified for the Holocaust, why he was justified for what he did. This is one of them, and I, I think it's the most poignant one, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. He says, was there ever a crueler invention to harm human existence than of an omnipotent, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago, this idea of an all-powerful, all-seeing, as if God, you know, God knows everything, yet invisible, impalatable, inconceivable God. And it all got started, he said, at Sinai. Sinai screwed up everything for us. And so he feels justified in what he did to attempt to wipe out all the Jews because of what they did by ruining human existence at Sinai, what happened there? And here's his basic argument. He says, okay, before Sinai, you know, there were pagan gods, right? All these, you know, smaller gods, kind of like the Greek gods. The, the, these were man-made idols. They, they, they were portable. They were, they were pliable. They were accommodating to us. But in the fire and the smoke of Sinai, he says this, the Jews emptied the world of all these gods by setting this God apart, immeasurably apart from man's senses. There's no image, no concrete embodiment, no imagining even, a blank emptier than the desert, yet with terrifying nearness. Spying on our every misdeed, searching out the heart of our heart for motive. 
And Hitler says, would you call me a tyrant? What about this God? There is no one more tyrannical than him, he says. And here's his point. He says, if we, could, if we had gods who were themselves flawed, them, you know, themselves, they're sinful, they're selfish, they're broken, they're fragmented, then we can blame all of our junk on them. They created us. It's not like I have to answer to anyone higher than myself, right? But they have blackmailed us, he says, with a transcendent, holy God. And he, he ends by saying this. He says, and we shall vomit you, he's speaking to the Jews, and we shall vomit you out so we may live and have peace. A final solution, how could there be any other? The idea that we're talking about tonight, this attribute of God, is this realization that Steiner puts into the words, into the mouth of, of Hitler, that God's holiness is a game changer in the history of the world. In a way, Hitler was very close to the truth in this story. If, if there is one absolutely good, holy God, he, he is a threat to my selfishness. He is a threat to my little kingdom of what I like to call my possessive, my life. And so we're in this series looking at this idea of what, what kind of God is really out there? What kind of God do we encounter? And we talked about this idea that God is, he's not just personal, but he's tri-personal, three-personal. You know, the Trinity, this idea that there's one God and yet these three centers of consciousness in him. And the impact that that has on our understanding of what we're called to do, how we live in community. What it means to have a God who is in his essence love. We looked the other week at this idea that, that God is omnipotent. He has all power. There is nothing too difficult for him. And he's the God that, that we're called to do the sort of things like Moses was called to. Go do something that looks absolutely impossible. And the only reason that you don't have to give up is because of this idea that God is infinitely capable. And tonight, I want us to look at this idea of what does it mean for God to be holy? Um, holiness or the holiness of God, maybe as simply as possible, could just refer to God, God's otherness. That he's not just like everything else that we've encountered since we started on this earth. It points to this idea that God is qualitatively different. He is set apart from all, everything else. All creation stands on this totally different level. The world came into being at some point. God is everlasting. That's an other quality. The world is selfish. It is bent on its own exaltation. God gushes forth this, this self-giving love. The world is, is, is fractured. It is disjointed. God is whole. He is, he is perfectly integrated. The world is in a state of decay. God is incorruptible. The world is impure. And we're seeing this, no, no, God, God is holy. He is pure. He's without stain. He is without blemish. And so the question of God's holiness really within the history of religion is, is a major division kind of from the east and the west, the east part of our world and the west part of our world. Um, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, 
says, a lot of people believe in God. History of the world, the majority of people have said, yes, there is a God. You know, of course, we've said early on, there's no word so meaningless as G-O-D until you define it. And he says, there, there are kind of two big branches when you start, you know, people who say, yeah, there's a God. And it's all based on how they answer this question, what is God like? And it's this issue right here. Is he beyond good and evil? Is God beyond good and evil? See, the biblical idea is, is that God is quite definitely good. Or, or, or righteous is a word that the Bible uses. He is a God who takes sides. He loves love. He hates hatred. He calls us to behave in one way and not another. God is at his core, is, is this it? In his essence, God is a holy God. He is the very standard of what is good. But then there's a, there's a different way to answer that question. If you say, no, God's not beyond good and evil. God is the very standard of goodness. There's another view that we're going to look at tonight, just a little bit. Pantheism. You can see it's kind of made up of two different words. Theism, that's probably a word that we're a little, little more familiar with. Theism refers to the idea that, yes, there's a God, a belief in God. Christians would be theists. Muslims would be theists. Pan is the Greek word meaning everything, all. So pantheism is this idea that all is God, or you could invert that and say God is all. There is no distinction. There's no otherness. Remember, you know, we were saying, you know, the world's this way, God's different. The, you know, we're like this guy. No, 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 no. There's no distinction between creation, the world, and God. Or if there is, it's kind of like the, the world is God's body. So it's really a part of him. We can't really make fine lines between stuff and the God of the universe. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, writes this about this idea of pantheism. He says, We humans call one thing good and another thing bad. But according to pantheists, this is merely our human point of view. Pantheists would say that the wiser you become, or maybe the more enlightened you become, uh, the less you're going to want to call anything really good or bad, and the more clearly you will see that everything is good in one way and just bad in another. And long before you get anywhere near, like, God's point of view, what he thinks, um, this distinction of good and bad, it just disappears altogether. God is beyond categories, and good's a category and bad's a category. So God's beyond, you can't even, you know, he's uh, um, unclassifiable. He's beyond all those, ca uh, all those categories. So we call cancer bad, um, they would say, because it kills a man. But they would say, well, you might just as well um, call it um, a, a successful surgeon bad because he kills a cancer. It's really all on your point of view is what it depends on here. And see, the linchpin to this sort of idea is that if you don't take seriously a distinction between good and evil, um, it's easy to say everything's God, right? But as Lewis puts it, 
if you think some things are really bad, like actually, and some things are really good, then you cannot talk like that. You must believe that God is separate from the world and that some things we see are contrary to his will. Lewis's whole point here is this. When you're confronted by cancer, when you're confronted by a slum, when you're confronted by a child who has been sold into a human slave sex trafficking, the pantheist can say, you know, if you could just see this from a more enlightened perspective, you would see that this too, this also is God. Now, probably all of us have this internal, we recoil against that. That's just not right. That doesn't line up with how our hearts are hardwired. Pantheist theology doesn't come anywhere close to accurately describing our experience of, of life. So why is this sort of kind of pantheistic view so appealing? Like, like why would this be so appealing if, if, it, if we recoil against it? Jesus, I think, great, gave a great answer to this. In John 3.19, remember John 3.16, the famous, for God so loved the world and all this sort of thing, right? Right after that, this famous verse that we probably all have memorized, right after that, he uses kind of verdict language, same thing as they were, we were using in the story about Hitler. And in John 3.19, Jesus says this. He says, this is the verdict. He's handing down the verdict too. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth does come into that light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Um, Pastor Dick Foth spoke a few weeks ago up here on the weekend. Um, we're doing this movie series. Um, how many of you heard, heard his, his sermon on Les Mis? Les Miserables, the, the, this fabulous story by, by Victor Hugo. In the book version of it, you know, we were, we were kind of springboarding off the 2012 film. In the book version of Victor Hugo, he, he really contrasts these, these two guys, uh, Jean Valjean and Javert. And both of them have actually very similar backgrounds. Uh, you know, Javert, the guy who kind of lives everything, has to be upright, and doesn't you know, extend grace to anyone else. Um, in the book, you know, his mother was a gypsy. His father was in prison. He grew up in prison. And he sort of pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. And um, what's interesting is both of these guys, in different parts of the book, like hundreds of pages separated, encounter grace. Uh, Jean Valjean encounters it, you know, the whole candlestick thing, if we were here with that. And Javert later encounters grace by Jean Valjean. He gets it. Both of them get this radical expression of grace. And what's interesting is Victor Hugo uses the exact same sentence to refer to their response, both of their response. He says this about each of them, a couple hundred pages apart. He was like an owl blinded by the sun. An owl which lives at night. was like an owl blinded by the sun. Because, see, when you've been living in the shadows, the sun, it just blinds you at first. And so this idea of, why wouldn't we want a God who is holy? Because as scripture tells us, God lives in unapproachable light. And when we, when we first encounter grace, is it beautiful? Yes, but it hurts. It hurts our eyes. It's like walking out 
from a cave into midday sun, and we can't see perfectly. It's painful. There's difficulties. There's even a desire to go back into the cave. And like Steiner's fictitious Hitler in the uh, Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., God's holiness presents almost an irreconcilable problem to us, to all of us. Remember, you go back to the Genesis story, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve first unplug from God. The electricity's gone. They're living now, Scripture says, by the sweat of their own brow on their own steam. And it, it says God exiled them from the garden. And if you remember the picture that the author uses, he says, and he placed an angel with a flaming sword in front of it, right? Blocking the entrance back in. The idea is, if they wanted to get back into the presence of God, they would have to go under the sword. And so there's this, this problem I want to get in, but it's, you know, if you get in and you're dead, then you're not really, that doesn't help too much. But if you stay out, you're miserable. So which one's better? And it's this eternal human problem down through the centuries, and every religious philosophy system attempts to deal with that problem, attempts to make some sort of payment, attempts to, how can I make this right? How can I plug back in? How can I live not by the sweat of my own brow? How can I have that electricity that I know I was hardwired for, but I've never quite experienced it, but I just know in my knower that it is true? Well, we'll come back to that, the problem. First, I want us to see... Why would we even want to be back in, right? Because if we say it's death to self, I kind of have to die to myself. Why in the world would I want that? Would I want to be there? Let's go back to the story of Moses. A few chapters later, chapter 19, Moses has gone into Egypt. The plagues have happened. He has, he, through the power of God, has delivered Israel out. They've come back to what he said. Here's the sign that you'll know I was legit. God says to him, you're going to end up right back here at this mountain. He says, that's going to be the sign. You're going to get back here because on your own steam, you'd never get back here. So if you get here, you know it was me and not you. So he gets back to Sinai. And in chapter 19, verse 1, we read this. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, uh, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out, uh, they entered the desert, Israel camped there, and it says, at that very mountain. There's kind of that key idea there. It says, Moses went up to God, the Lord called uh, to him from the mountain and said this, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, because they're, they're down there, he's up there alone. He's an unapproachable light that he calls Moses to him. Um, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, chapter 20, the next chapter, the end of this is the Ten Commandments. This is where he first gives the covenant relationship to them. Then out of all the nations, now look at these, look at these three things that are said here. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, what's really interesting God, God does something here. He tells them three things. He tells them what their value is in life. He explains them what, what their identity is. And then he lays out for them this is your destiny. 
He's using fulfillment language. He's using language of flourishing. He's using uh, engineering schematic language to say, this is how you were intended to function. This is going to be your value in life. And this is what he is. You will be for me a treasured possession. That is their value. Your value is that I'm going to treasure you like something of utmost importance, something that I cherish, that I love. Now, this again, this is the God of the universe speaking. That's their value. Their identity is that you will be a kingdom of priests. Now, they know very well what a priest does. A priest goes in between two parties. A priest is the one who, who, who tries to make that connection again between the lost relationship. A priest goes to the father who, who, who is exiled from the son and brings them back together in some way. You have a role to play. And then he says, your destiny, and he uses this word holiness. Your destiny, what your goal in life, what you were made for, is to be a holy people. Now, they don't know what that means. They've got, what does that mean, holiness? The whole rest of the history is God sketching a picture of what it means to be a holy people. This is what Jesus is, maybe one of his closest disciples, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.14, he says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he, as he who called you is, and here's our word, holy, this otherness, so you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And see, what I would suggest is that many of us, one of the big roadblocks to, to seeking wholeness with God, holiness, is it sounds like a, well, that won't be fun. You know, I mean, if we were honest, we would say that, yeah, but then I don't get to, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't, you know, think this and I can't, you know, be in charge. I can't. And what God's laying out is saying that that's, that's a pattern for life, which you will actually not be as fulfilled as you would be if you lived a life which was, which was holy in this really big sense of the word. See, because God's, God's holiness to us is a thing of terror. Uh, Martin Luther was a, was a monk um, within the Roman Catholic tradition, and he, he would go to confession, he would confess his sins, and every time he left, he, he had this sense of, maybe I haven't, I still feel dirty, I still feel like it just, I didn't get rid of it all, something's not right. And so he kept going back in and kept going back in, and the story is told that one time he went in uh, and he confessed his sins, and the guy behind the curtain said, Luther, come back when you've really done something bad. This is getting ridiculous. You're just coming all the time. But he had a more accurate sense of, I am standing before a holy God, and I'm nowhere near that. How do I do that? And one day, as he was doing penance, he was on his knees, walking up and down the stone stairs, back and forth, his knees bleeding, penance to try to, how do I get back past the sword? And he was reciting scripture because that's what he did. And he was going over Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And as he said it, all of a sudden something clicked. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel is the righteousness of God. That's that holiness, how I can be right with God. Is the righteousness of God. It's revealed a righteousness that is by faith, from first, it's not by penance, it's not by activity, it's not by doing anything. 
just as it is written, and I'm quoting the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. And this, is, this was this great realization of his. The righteousness of God is what has condemned me my whole life, right? The holiness of God is the problem. It's, it's why I can't come into his presence. And so always seeing the holiness of God as, as a roadblock, as a barrier. And then this great reality is something happened which inverted that. And all of the sudden, the holiness of God now becomes the thing that allows me to come into his presence. Because of this, this idea of redemption. Um, I was... I was listening to this guy who, who was an insurance agent a little while ago, and, and he used this word that I had no idea was an insurance word because it's like a theological word in my mind. He, he was talking about certain policies that they write, and he said, um, it's this idea that like, if you loan your car to someone and they drive it and, and, and they get into an accident, we don't go after them. We go after you because the guilt is imputed to you imputation. He said, this is, this is just an insurance word that we use. And so they write these policies in this way. Um, and so whoever's holding the policy, the policy holder, that the guilt of that action is imputed to them. And see, this is this whole idea that Christ's activity, his, his perfect life, his perfect righteousness and holiness, he trades, he exchanges for my imperfect life and he holds my life in hand. He's the deed holder. So my sin is imputed to him. He pays for that. That's why the picture of the cross is the central thing for Christians. We talked about that earlier this semester, this idea of why the cross is so central, why we always go back to the cross. Because God's holiness apart from the cross means my utter destruction. If I think there's any way that I can go into the presence of God on my own, I am fooling myself. But if one has made a way, and again, the language the Bible of the biblical authors uses, if I clothe myself in Christ's righteousness, if I have something which allows me to go into that. So the reason that holiness comes to have this idea of kind of purity. You know, we hear holiness and we say, oh, you know, it means like being good. It means being like doing good things and all that sort of thing. Why is that? Well, it's this idea. Sin, sin is rebellion against God. Um, think of it like this. If I'm called to be, you know, my, my identity is to be a priest, I'm called to be whole, I'm essentially called to be like a tool in the hand of God. I'm a, uh, I'm a hammer in the carpenter's hand. Sin is the hammer rebelling against the carpenter. Um, it's, it's the hammer saying, I don't, I don't want to be used for that purpose, for how I was intended. I, I, I just want to do my own thing. I want to be used for some other purpose. I want, um, and so when God says, I want you to be holy, what is he really saying? He's saying, I want you to function the way you were designed to function. So when I call you to be holy, it's not a straitjacket. It's something that actually when you embrace this, you are happier, you flourish more than you ever have in your whole life. It's grace. But, but see, it, it never comes until we grasp the reality of a God who confronts us with this inapproachable light 
and, and grace hits us and it knocks us off our feet. And for the Christian, I would suggest the, the biggest danger to my soul and to yours as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is to forget the concept of grace and to think that I can saunter into the presence of a holy God somehow on some other reason something I've done, my achievement, I've, you know, I read my Bible, I pray, I've been baptized. I, I think that's the biggest stumbling block to religious people and why we have to keep coming back to grace in our life. I love the words, and I want to close with this, and I want us to just sing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Jenny to come up, and I want us to sing because I love the words so well because it, it captures this grand paradox of standing on holy ground and how in the world can I do that? John Wesley wrote in the hymn, And Can It Be, this great idea of uh, bold I approach the eternal throne. You know that, that line? Why in the world did he say that? Listen to his words here. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in, divine, in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. Think about that. If that doesn't rock you, you haven't thought hard enough about grace and about your and my condition. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. I want us to sing this song and then we're just going to pray and we're going to be together and hang out. But would you stand? Close your eyes and just reflect on the reality of what God has done for you to be able to actually verbalize, for me to be able to verbalize these words. Heavenly Father, we, we want to, we just want to be jolted by the reality that as we, and we can boldly walk in your presence and, and there's no shame and there's no guilt, but God, sometimes we get tired of that becomes old hat to us. Father, would you shatter the deafness of our hearts that we're not blown away by that. And when that does happen, Father, we know that you will move us out in relationship toward other people, in humility, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, that we would have just be re-energized by the reality of a life transformed by deep, deep, costly grace we thank you for that God we live thankful we live without condemnation we thank you Lord that that there is no condemnation none for those who are in Christ Jesus we're thankful for that God and we pray that in his name that has conquered all who has hold the, who, who holds the deeds to our lives and to whom our sin has been imputed. We are grateful, God. We love you. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm going to invite our, our prayer team to come forward to be at the two uh, crosses. If you would like prayer, it would be an honor to be able to pray with you. Um, we've got a few minutes. We can hang out. You can go get your kids. Bring them back. We've got homemade chocolate chip cookies, brownies, and fruit, something or another look good in the back. We're also going to be spending a little bit of time up front if you guys kind of want to do a little Q&A, just further discussion, anyone about these. Love you guys. See you this weekend. Have a great night.